earlier meetings today. So uh, I really thank God for cross-pollination across churches and uh, the gifts that God has given His people, the body, to build the body up and that we may reach maturity in the faith. Do you want to stretch your hands towards Steve as a way of saying, Lord Jesus, be with this man. Father, thank you so much for the way that Steve has been so willing to serve and sacrifice and love and prepare and deliver all that you've given him. And we pray that he would know joy as he preaches tonight. And that your word would find a place in our hearts. We pray that you bless him as he preaches tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Great. Firstly, to say thank you very much to Scott and to the elders for having me for this weekend. It's been the most amazing time. I can't really put into words, Scott, how much I've enjoyed and how you have ministered to me as a congregation and as elders. So, thank you so much. Thank you to you for having me, for your hospitality, for your friendship, for your friendliness. Uh, to Jason and his family for their hospitality as I've stayed with them in their home. It's been an amazing time. My first time in Zimbabwe and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. would love to get my family up here at some point to meet you all. So thank you. So I was delighted to hear when Jason told me about the, the series on the covenants that you were doing over the, the previous weeks. Um, because the story of redemption, the God story, um, is really an amazing thing when you begin to see it in the Old Testament. I think for a long time I didn't understand the Old Testament and it didn't make sense to me uh, until someone explained what Jason and the, the other guys have been doing in this series, that actually God has only got one plan. There's no plan B and He's been doing what He's been doing with wisdom through all of human history. Uh, that, that realization did something for my faith. And it did something for my esteem of God. It elevated for me His greatness, His wisdom, His power. And the wonder of this thing called salvation. And what you and I are privileged to have been swept up into. Because what He's doing is He's gathering a bride for His Son. Because He loves His Son. And that's us. We get swept up into this. It's wonderful. And then uh, last week, I think it was Jason that preached on the first of uh, a kind of series that follows on from that crimson thread. Um, I think it's the banner up there, which is kind of, I think it's, that's three weeks, right? That represents three weeks of sermons on the early church. So what happened after Jesus rose from the dead and then the church was born at Pentecost? And uh, Jason spoke last week that the early church was a church of the Spirit. And uh, my role tonight is to speak on that second one, that the, the church was an evangelistic endeavor. It was a missionary enterprise. And I want to look at that this evening from the book of Acts, which is the natural place to go to if we're looking at the early church. We're going to go to Acts chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 27 to 32 together. As you're paging there, um, let me give you a, a little advance as to what I'm going to be speaking on. I'm going to pull out five aspects of the early church's witness that we find uh, in church history. We find it in the book of Acts, and I believe we can see it in this short little section of scripture that we're going to be reading tonight. All five of these we're going to pull out of these verses. So the first one, I'm going to give you all five now and then we'll go through them one by one. 
The first one is that the early church, their witness was a witness to facts. Secondly, it was a witness given through public declaration. Thirdly, it was a witness supported or undergirded by, carried along by a praying community. Fourth, it was a witness made effective through the accompanying witness of the Holy Spirit. And then fifthly, it was a a, a witness personified or um, made real, embodied by a loving community. This wasn't a lone voice going out into the world. It was a, it was a voice emanating from a, a community of people who were staggeringly different from the world around them. Okay, so um, as we page now to Acts chapter 5, verse 27 and onwards, before we read it, I want to just give you a bit of context to these verses. Um, these verses... Are, uh, they are a record of the words of Peter when he was standing before the Sanhedrin. Now what's the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jews. Uh, the head of the Sanhedrin was the high priest. And it was made up mainly of Sadducees. And uh, these were the men that had recently condemned Jesus to death. Now Peter and John and the other apostles find themselves before the Sanhedrin having to defend what they're doing. That's what we're going to be reading tonight. But how did they get there that that day? Well, if we just page back a couple of uh, chapters, we'll see in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John were going down to the temple at the hour of prayer. And they had come across a man who begged for some money from them. He was a lame man. And... Uh, Peter had said to him those famous words, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took this man by the hand and he, and he lifted him up. And as he lifted him up, the Holy Spirit came upon this man and strengthened his bones and he was instantly healed. He began jumping up and down and leaping and shouting and praising God. So much so, in fact, that he drew quite a big crowd. People were running over to see what this commotion was about. And what did the apostles do? Well, they did whatever they, they did, what they, what they did every time they managed to draw a crowd or get an audience anywhere. They preached the gospel. That's what they did. That preaching of the gospel got them into hot water. They were uh, dragged before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest said to them, how dare you be preaching in the name of Jesus? We, ha- we forbid you to do it. But they couldn't find any way to punish Uh, Peter and John, because all the people had seen that a remarkable miracle had been done. It was so remarkable because this man was over 40 years old. I find that the most offensive scripture in the New Testament, Scott. That's how old he was. He was over 40. So it was completely miraculous that this man could get healed. Anyhow, so they couldn't find any way to punish Peter and John, and so um, they, they let them go. When they let Peter and John go, we're going to return to this a little bit later, uh, they went back to their, their friends in the church, and they were so excited by what had happened, they had a, a prayer meeting, they called on God, they quote Psalm 2 in that, in that prayer, and then they asked God to stretch out His hand to heal, and that signs and wonders would be done in the name of His holy servant Jesus, and they pray for boldness to be able to preach, and what happens at the end of that prayer meeting, you've read it, the whole room where they were gathered shook like an earthquake, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness, it said. 
What an incredible prayer meeting to have been in. Um, then, as we read on the narrative, what, what happened shortly after that was, power began to manifest in this early church. Now, the first thing we see is there was a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. They had uh, said that they had sold a piece of land, which many people in the church were doing, and bringing the, the money to the apostles' feet so that it could be distributed to the poor. Um, they sold a piece of land, and they came along, and they said that they were giving all the money that they'd sold it for, but actually they were lying. They kept part of the, the money back. Now, the problem wasn't that they didn't give it all. They didn't have to give it all. They're under no obligation to do so. Peter makes that point to them. The problem was that they lied. They were lying. They said they were giving it all, but they weren't. And Peter says to Ananias, the husband who comes in first, says to him, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. You have lied to the Holy Spirit. And instantly the Holy Spirit strikes this man dead. And the young men carry his body out and bury him. Three hours later, his wife comes in. Peter asks her, did you sell the money? Did you sell the piece of land for so much money? She says, yes, we did. Boom, she gets struck dead. They carry her out. Now the Bible says great fear came upon the church at that moment. And not only the church, but the surrounding region. All the people in Jerusalem heard about this. And there were some who were so terrified by this what they were hearing, that there was this power in this early church that they refused to go anywhere near the Christians. It says the people held them in, in great esteem and they didn't go to them. But to others, it was, that was kind of like the stench of death leading to death. It kept them away from the church. There were others, though, who were attracted by this. It was the, the fragrance of life leading to life for them. And they joined the church. And the church, it says, multitudes of men and women were added to the church because of this power. Then you read on a little bit further, this is now halfway through Acts chapter 5, and we, we see that through the, through, the, um, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. They met in that one little colonnade in the temple. There, there was huge power coursing through this early church. Everyone the, the apostles prayed for God healed. A couple of verses later, it says that the... Um, the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, so that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them, and as, and as many of them as the shadow passed over were healed. I mean, I don't think we can conceive how much power was pulsating through this early church. So it's, 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 in, the, it's in the context of this um, that now leads up to the next confrontation with the Jewish ruling council. They hear about this power, about the success that multitudes of Jews are being converted. What does that mean to the Sanhedrin? It means they're losing their power base. They're losing control. And so they drag the disciples uh, in front of them again. And... Uh, they first throw them in prison. It's a fascinating little detail of the story that, that Luke tells us. They, they get thrown in prison, but that night an angel actually lets them out of prison. Apparently the soldiers who were guarding them were put under some kind of sleep because they knew nothing about it in the morning. Um, and when they were being released, the angel said to them, look, I'm not releasing you for your own comfort. The message from God is this, go back to the temple and start preaching again. So that's exactly what they do. In the morning, the high priest sends his servant down to the jail. He says, all smugly, well, go and get those you know, silly disciples. Get them out of prison again. They'll, I would have taught them a lesson by a night in jail. Meanwhile, the guy opens the door and there's no one in there. 
So the guy comes back a little bit sheepishly and he says, uh, Oh, Mr. High Priest, I'm, I'm really sorry about this, but there was no one in the cell. What do you, he said, What do you mean there was no one in the cell? Well, we opened the door, the guard had been there the whole night, and there's no one in there. As he's giving him this testimony, some other guy arrives and he says, Mr. High Priest, you know those guys that you said we're not allowed to preach anymore? We've just seen them, they're down at the temple preaching. So the high priest, he, he then sends the temple police down there and he says, okay, look, gather them up again, bring them before me, but don't cause a riot because he knew that people were loving this whole thing. So they go down and they bring the apostles and the apostles are now planted before the council. And that's where we now pick up the story. That's verse 27 of Acts chapter 5. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. As we pick our way through these verses, I hope to be able to bring out in some way how absolutely astonishing the words of Peter are here. There is so much depth in this little sermonette, this little message he gives to the the high priest and his ruling council, that it actually begins to stagger the mind when you begin to, to unpack it and see all that he's saying. Okay, so let's begin with the first of the five aspects of the church's early witness. And I'm going to pick them all out of these verses. Firstly, the early church's witness was a witness to facts. What does Peter say? He says, verse 32, We are his witnesses to these things. What things? The fact that... The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. You have murdered him by hanging him on a tree. And then he ascended into heaven. We saw these things with our very eyes. And we are his witnesses to these things. The gospel is news. Now it is good news to be sure. But it is news. It is The communication of a set of historical facts together with an explanation of how those facts relate to us. So the gospel says this, it says, here is what has happened in these last days. These are the facts. We are eyewitnesses of these things. And here is the significance of those historical facts. So the gospel is a presentation of events. It's a communication of history. And then an explanation of the meaning of those events. There was a philosopher in, I believe he was around in the early 20th century, maybe the the late 19th century. His name was Lessing. And he coined the phrase, or afterwards people speaking about his philosophy, spoke about Lessing's big ditch. 
And what Lessing said, there was a big ditch between, a big chasm that couldn't, cannot be passed between history and significance for our lives today. He said, how can anything that happened 2,000 years ago mean anything for you today? How can it break into your life today and bring transformation? He says it's not possible. And you may think that's a, a, a stupid argument, but when you get into the philosophy of that, if you do not believe in a God who superintends all of history, if you don't believe that the same God who was directing affairs 2,000 years ago is directing the affairs of your life today and He hasn't changed, if you don't believe that, this Lessing's question is actually very difficult to answer. But you see, that's Lessing's problem. He, he doesn't believe in a God who is sovereign over history. And that's what the Bible tells us we have. That's why the, the historical events that took place 2,000 years ago can still bring transformation and freedom and power to people's lives today. Because the same God that did those things is reaching out to you. He can apply what happened 2,000 years ago to you because He's the God of time. He dwells outside of time. Time is His creature. He does with it as He wills. He can stretch it. He can collapse it. And He can apply things across space and time. Absolutely. <clears throat> the early church... I want to actually read you um, the first four verses of Luke's Gospel. So this is the same author that wrote the book of Acts. And I want to read you how he describes the gospel. What is the gospel? You know, we have four books at the beginning of the New Testament which are eyewitness accounts of the events that took place over about a 33-year period in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Those four books we call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we call them the gospels. So what is the gospel? Well, let's see what Luke describes as being the gospel. Inasmuch as many have taken in, in, in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have, have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all these things from the very first, to write to you. Now what does Luke say he's going to write to most excellent Theophilus? To write to you an orderly account, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Luke calls the gospel an orderly account. The early church was not a group of people who gathered around a way of life, a sentiment, a feeling of brotherly love, a sentiment of somehow the... the the fatherliness of God somewhere out there. No, the, the, the early church, first and foremost, was brought together and kept together by a set of historical events that had taken place in their days, together with an understanding of what those events meant to them. Now, how, how do we know what those events mean to us? How is it that we can correctly interpret history? And there is only one way that you will ever understand history. And that is by looking at history through the lenses of the one who authored history. 
because he knows why he did certain things. Now, where does God reveal to us the meaning of history? In the Bible. This book is a lens which when you put it on, the, the, the unclear and fuzzy details of this world can become clear and you can understand what is happening. History cannot be understood outside of the revelation of Jesus Christ in His Word. So as you see the early church witnessing to a set of historical facts and then explaining the meaning of the facts, we always see this. They explain the meaning of those historical events through the Scriptures. They used, in their case, the Old Testament and then the teachings of the Apostles, which became the New Testament. They used that body to interpret what had happened in those days. Okay, so these two things are, are inseparable. If you want to understand the witness of the early church, these two things were held together in an inseparable union. Historical facts together with the meaning of those facts. Now you may wonder, why am I making such a big issue of this particular point? Well, Probably the greatest attack on the church throughout the last 2,000 years has not been physical attack. The, the most treacherous danger in, in the church is heresy. It's getting your doctrine wrong. It's, it's, it's denying certain things that the Bible affirms. In the 1950s, a man called John Gresham Machen wrote a famous book called Christianity and Liberalism. If you want to get excited by a book, just go and buy that book and read it. What happened was, for the previous hundred years, the church had slowly and increasingly so descended into liberalism. And the hallmark of liberalism, which, which infected many churches and many seminaries, the hallmark of it was this. We are going to question the historicity of the accounts of the Gospels. We don't think that the Gospels are actually inerrant, that, they, that they're accurate. So, for example, a man called Albert Schweitzer wanted to get to the real Jesus, the historical Jesus. Who is the historical Jesus? Let's cut through all the clutter of the myths and the legends that have grown around this man, and let's get back to like the real Jesus. And of course, what did Albert Schweitzer say at the end of his little journey there? He decided, no, Jesus was just an ordinary man. And that's what all the liberals ended up saying he certainly wasn't the son of God the divine one and he certainly didn't rise from the dead that's all just fables that have come up around his life now John Gresham Machen battled that in a big way and he wrote this incredible book I encourage you to go and read it and basically what he said was this no if you don't have as the early church had an absolute conviction that the events of 2,000 years ago are real human history. Then the meaning of those events does not exist and you have no Christianity. So if you want to understand the witness of the early church, you have to understand that. They were communicating a set of facts and then interpreting through the lens of Scripture. So here we see that with Peter. What does he do? He says in verse 32, he says, we are his witnesses to these things. 
We are as witnesses to these things. What things? Well, the things that concern Jesus Christ. God raised him up. You murdered him. He was crucified. Him, God is exalted. He was raised from the dead. Forty days later, we saw him ascend into heaven. We saw it with our own eyes. It's true. It happened. And then he does the other thing as well. He interprets the meaning of those events through the lens of Scripture. He says, the God of our fathers did this. Who was at the desert? It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who did this. And what was the meaning? It was so that he could become prince and savior. The Davidic king who sits on David's throne and the savior of the world. And through him now forgiveness is offered for sinners. That's the meaning of the events. So let's learn this from the early church. Our role, if we are going to preach the gospel, is to communicate the facts of the gospel to our generation. The historical facts. What happened? And then we are to explain the meaning of those events to our generation through the lens of Scripture. And I find that incredibly liberating. What, what, so how do you share the gospel with someone? What is the gospel? Tell them what happened. You can do that. Absolutely. Just tell them what happened. And then explain to them the meaning of what happened. That's all evangelism is. And then, of course, when we do that, the Holy Spirit does His job. He opens people's hearts. And He delights them with this message as they're born again. Okay, that's the first point I wanted to make. That the early church as witness was a witness to facts. Secondly, it was a public witness. I don't want to spend much time on this, but let me just say this. God's chosen means of the communication of this gospel and its power to course through any generation as it was in that early church, one of His chosen means, and I'd say one of His primary means to get this message out is through public declaration, through preaching and teaching. That's one of the reasons the writer to the Hebrews says this. Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. You know, when, when uh, Scott get, gets up here to preach, when Jace will get up here to preach on a Sunday evening, they're not doing that because they have, they're insecure. They had a bad childhood and so now they, they need affirmation and so they need people listening to them. It's not some kind of itch they need to scratch for their personal purposes. It's not tradition. That's not what brings them here. They are being obedient to the command of God in Scripture. He has de decreed in the way the church will grow, that it will grow through certain men who He separates for Himself and He gifts them to be able to make this message known and they preach in public gatherings. Now that's important because our generation wants to dumb that down. They want more music, more worship, less preaching. Smaller groups, more conversation. It all sounds great, looks good in a psychology textbook, but let me tell you, God has chosen that public preaching will be the means He will use. And we see that in the early church. These men were preaching publicly often. Thirdly, the, the witness of the early church is a witness supported by a praying community. So the power of, the, of, of that early evangelism 
a lot of it was fueled because the entire church was praying for the witness of the church. Of course, we saw that in Acts uh, chapter 4. I alluded to that, that great prayer meeting where um, yeah, they, they quote Psalm 2 about why the nations raged. They crucified the Messiah and yet God has exalted him. And now they call upon God to pour out this power so that his name will be glorified. Stretch out your hand to heal, they say. You know, God hears the prayers of the church. There are these wonderful comments in the Gospels where Jesus says things like, wherever two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of you. If you agree on earth concerning anything that you ask for, I'll give it to you. Now, I mean, there is some mystery around how that plays out, but at least we can say this. When you... The congregation pray, God listens, and God acts. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul pleads with the church in Ephesus. He says, please pray for me. Now this is the Apostle Paul. This is towards the end of his life. He's got 25 years of ministry under the belt. He's probably the greatest preacher who ever lived after Jesus Christ. This is a man who was so powerful when he preached that the, that the Gentiles called him Hermes, Mercury. That's the messenger of the gods, the one who proclaims the messages in the Roman pantheon. They called him Hermes. That's how powerful this man was when he spoke. And yet, he felt compelled to ask the Ephesians to pray for him. This was the man that wrote the book of Romans. Probably the most sublime piece of writing on the planet. This is the man that wrote the book of Galatians. And he says, pray for me that I might make the mystery of the gospel known. I mean, if there's anybody who's ever been able to make the mystery of the gospel known, it was Paul. And yet he says to the Ephesians, pray for me. Pray that utterance would be given to me so that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Pray for me, please. If this church is ever going to be a church... Where this pulpit is attended by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are going to have to be praying for your preachers and for their preaching. John Calvin said this, this is the great 16th century reformer. There is no man alive so richly gifted in his preaching that he does not need the assistance of the prayers of the saints. I hope that you feel challenged and empowered by this. God has set it up this way. This is the way He wants the church to function. Because He doesn't want one person being able to do everything. We are a body. The eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. And the ear can't say to the nose, I have no need of you. And in fact, those gifts which are most prominent... The ones that get to stand up in the front. Paul says that God deals with them in a certain way in which the more humble gifts are actually required for their strength. Go and look how in 1 Corinthians Paul talks about how the gifts all work together. You, as you sit in your seat there tonight, are central to the power of the preaching in this church. So is there a culture 
of prayer in this church for your preachers. And listen, not just for your preachers, for their families, their marriages, their children. Yes. But is there a culture of prayer for their preaching? When last did you pray for the preaching of this church? And I pray that that would be both a challenge and an encouragement that God sees you and hears you and you can influence the power that emanates from here. Amen. Okay, number four. It was made effective by the witness of the Holy Spirit. Okay, verse 32. This is what Peter says. He says, We are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. These are actually the most amazing words that Peter says to this high priest in front of the Sanhedrin. He basically says to this high priest, Don't be surprised that there is such power coursing through the veins of this church, of these followers of Jesus. The reason we have such power and you have none is because the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God that you claim to worship, He gives the Holy Spirit... The same Spirit that was on the Old Testament prophets, Mr. High Priest. He gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. That's why we have such power. We have power because we are obeying God by worshipping and serving Jesus Christ. And you, having killed Him and rejecting Him, are disobeying the very God that you claim to believe in. See the boldness of this man. So the Holy Spirit empowered the evangelism of the early church in a number of ways. The first way he did it was by empowering the preaching of the initial preachers themselves. First the apostles and very soon it spread down into the deacons. You see Stephen preaching with such inordinate power that they could not argue with him. They just stopped their ears in the end and they ran at him and they stoned him to death. Such was his power in preaching. You see Philip go down to Samaria And an entire city is saved through that man's preaching. The Holy Spirit was doing something extraordinary through the preaching of the gospel in these days. And my heart is that we would regain that. Secondly, the Holy Spirit was empowering this witness by granting miracles. By granting signs and wonders to be done in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We read a bit of that in the book of Acts. There was great power. People were getting healed. And not only healings, but exorcism of demons was commonplace in the early church. You don't only see exorcisms in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. But if you read some of the early church fathers in that first 300 years of church history, um, the, the exorcism or the casting out of demons was commonplace. Now, they were preaching the gospel into a pagan culture. But the the witness of the early church was that so many of them could say, I was bound by Satan and in darkness, and in the name of Jesus, I have been completely set free. There was a a multitude of people who had a testimony like that in the early church. And this was the work of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit was empowering this evangelism through granting the apostles 
and, and an unearthly, a spiritual ability to defend themselves when they were brought before councils like this. And this is perfectly in keeping with the promise of Jesus. I want to read to you what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13 verse 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And we see a fulfillment of this. In this little sermonette of Peter. So what I want to do is I just want to go through his little message again with you. And I hopefully want to pull out some of the wonder of it. He begins in verse 29. He says, we ought to obey God rather than men. And immediately you see the boldness and the clarity of thought of this man. And we see their, their obedience their, their determination to obey God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a life-threatening situation or if you've been attacked, but you'll know if you get into like a high-pressure environment, it's quite common to get tunnel vision. Your, your thinking completely shuts down. You can't think of what to do. You, you almost can't see. Everything begins to shut down in a moment of stress. Well, look at this man in this moment. These people were capable of killing him, and yet he is perfectly lucid and bold. We ought to obey God rather than men. Verse 30. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, probably meaning the resurrection, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And see how they now accuse the, the high priest and this council of the most heinous crime. See the boldness of these men. They say, you murdered the Messiah, the one who sits on David's throne, the one who was promised in the Old Testament, the one who, the God that you claim to believe in, raised up, you murdered him. And not only did you murder him, you murdered him in the most grotesque, blasphemous way possible. You hung him on a tree. What's Peter doing? He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23. In the Mosaic law, Moses had said, if anyone is hung on a tree, you take him down before the sun sets, because whoever is hung on a tree is cursed to God. And Peter is saying to the high priest, you know what you did. You hung him on a tree. You killed him in the most blasphemous way. And it was God's Messiah. See the boldness of this man. See his command of the Old Testament scriptures in a moment. Verse 31. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior. To give repentance to Israel and to give forgiveness of sins. And see now how, how Peter claims he makes a direct claim as to who Jesus was. You see, this high priest would have known the scripture that Peter was now quoting. The most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110. It was a psalm of David, where David was looking by the Spirit prophetically down the generations to his own descendant who would be the Messiah. And he says this, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And here Peter quotes this verse. 
He says, this one that you murdered in the most blasphemous way possible, God has raised him up. We saw him ascend. And he has now seated him at his right hand. The one that you murdered is the Davidic king. That's quite staggering. And God has made him prince. What's that? The Davidic king. The one who sits on David's throne for all eternity. And he's made him savior. And it is through his name that forgiveness is now offered to Israel. It's not through your whole system. It's not through the sacrifices that you control. Forgiveness now comes through the one that you killed. Your whole system is passing away. That's what he tells him. See the clarity of these men. See the boldness of these men. See the love of their Savior. See the zeal. There's only one way you can explain this. The Holy Spirit was empowering them to make a defense of the gospel in their generation. And I'm telling you, we need this. You need this. When you go to school, when you go to university, when you go to your work, when you speak to your unsaved family, and there is an attack on the gospel... You need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in that moment to speak with boldness, to speak with clarity. We see this in the early church. I want you to see one more thing before I quickly do the last one and then we'll close. See the grace of these men. See the grasp of the breadth of the offer of forgiveness. The very men that murdered Jesus in the most blasphemous way possible. Peter did not stop his message by saying, you murdered him in a blasphemous way by hanging him on a tree. Peter preaches the very gospel of salvation to these men. He says, he is now the prince and savior and he offers forgiveness to Israel, to you. He offers you forgiveness if you will repent and put your faith in him. See the grace of these men. Now, I want to stop for a second here, and and I want to speak to anybody in this audience that you think you've done something in your life that is unforgivable. Maybe there's a woman here who's had an abortion. And there's not a day that goes by that your heart doesn't condemn you for what you did. I want to tell you tonight... On the testimony of Scripture, you look to Jesus and He'll forgive you. There is no sin too great. Bring your sin to Jesus and you leave it at the cross. He took the weight of that abortion for you. He took the punishment for that abortion for you when He was on the cross so that you can go free. Fifthly, the witness of the early church was a witness personified or embodied by a loving community. Peter constantly uses the plural pronoun we. He says we are his witnesses to these things. And while he is, yes, he's talking about we the apostles, we saw these things with our eyes. But I believe it's more than that. It's, it's the whole community. It's the church of Jesus. We as a community are a living, pulsating, organic witness to the truth. Of what we are saying in the gospel. The very power that moves through our meetings. Is a witness to the truth of what we are saying. 
the love and separateness, the fellowship, the fact that no one among us has needs, that there is unselfishness, that people who used to be idolaters and adulterers and fornicators and murderers, and such were some of you, Paul says to the Corinthians, they've now been changed. Now they've been washed. They've been sanctified. They've been glorified by Jesus Christ. This is a completely different people. We know that in the early church, the pagan writers, the Roman writers, if you read some of the Roman historians like Pliny, they speak of this weird sect of the, of the Nazarenes, those who followed the way of Jesus, that they were an amazingly ethical, upright people. One of the things that we read about is how the Christians would, would roam the streets and gather up the babies that the Romans would leave on the side of the street. They didn't have abortion in their times. Many times if they had a female child and they wanted a male, they would simply leave that child in the street to die. And the testimony of these Roman writers is that the, the Christians of the early days would walk through the streets and collect these babies and take them into their own homes and raise them as their own children. This was a staggeringly different group of people. They were a city set on a hill that couldn't be hidden. They were a light set on a lampstand and it was giving light to the whole world. One of the reasons I was so excited to be able to come to River of Life is I've heard from friends of mine back in Cape Town about your work amongst the poor, particularly your Foundations for Farming project and the massive difference that that has made and the sacrifice that men like Scott have, have, have made. He's sitting here tonight. He's got malaria. Why? Because he's been in Mozambique serving the poor. And Scott, I, I felt like God wanted to say to you tonight and to you as a church, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. I'm proud of you. You're getting this number five. You're getting it right. And Scott was telling me the doors are opening in all these communities for the gospel. Because the love of the church has been shown. So what do we do when we're faced with this? We look at these five things and some of them were good. Some of them we think, well, it's a mountain to climb to get our church there. Well, the first thing that, that you could possibly do as a church is to pray. Why don't you take these five things and say, Lord, like the early church, their witness was, was like this. Lord, make our witness like that. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. And he will. Because it's the job of Jesus to build this church. And he said he's going to do it. Amen? He's going to do it. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So ask him to. It's a prayer he delights to answer. I want to close tonight by addressing those of you who are perhaps guests here tonight. Perhaps you've been visiting for a few weeks. And maybe it is that you're sitting here tonight and you personally have never committed your life to Christ. You've never asked Him to forgive you of your sin. And I don't want you to miss this tonight. Because yes, there is a corporate sense to the gospel. There is a corporate declaration and there is a body that is a body together. But there is an individual aspect to the gospel. Where God commands all men and women everywhere individually to repent of sin. So the command of God to you through the gospel is you must repent. 
You must admit before God that you're a sinner, that you do stand condemned by Him, but that you want His forgiveness. You want to be washed clean of what you've done. And He's willing to do it. His promise is that if you will come to His Son in faith, you will find that every single sinful thing you've ever done with your life was put upon Jesus 2,000 years ago in human history. And He was crucified tortured, crushed, the Bible says, for your sin, so that you can be forgiven. Justice has been served. And you can know peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now maybe you have never received Christ as your Savior in that kind of individual way. And I'm going to ask you to respond tonight. Now before I'm asking for that response, I need to tell you what God requires of you. Number one, yes, He wants you to repent. He wants you to accept Christ as your Savior. But you can't just take Christ as Savior. What did Peter say? He has exalted Him to His right hand to be Prince and Savior. These two things are never separated. Jesus is not just Savior for sin. He is Prince. What does that mean? He's ruler. He's Lord. He's King of the universe. He now sits on the throne of heaven with all authority having been made His. And if you want... To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are going to have to give Him everything. You are going to have to follow Him with your entire life. He walks past Peter and John. They're busy washing their nets. And He says to them, follow me. And the Bible says, they left all and followed Him. Don't respond if you're not willing to do that. He must be Lord. And you must follow Him. The most amazing thing about it all is when you do that, you give up your life. You know what you find? You find it. That's the most amazing thing about the Gospel. You'll find that this God loves you. That He will adopt you as His child. That He'll make you a member of a family that will live together in a kingdom, a physical kingdom, under our shepherd King Jesus for all eternity. And you will be loved perfectly. And you will love perfectly. For all eternity we will live together in His presence. And you will be part of this bride of Christ which rejoices in its inheritance. That's what He offers. I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes. Just close your eyes for a minute while I'm going to ask for people to raise their hands. If you know that I've been speaking to you in these last three minutes, that that you are one of those that needs to come to Jesus personally for salvation, I want to pray with you tonight. So could you please just raise your hand? Just raise your hand nice and high so that I can see it. Thank you, sir. Just keep your hands up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just keep your eyes closed and keep those hands up, please. I know that there are people in this room feeling a great tugging in your heart. It's almost like there's this battle going on. Should I raise my hand? Shouldn't I? Should I? Shouldn't I? It's like the the Holy Spirit and the devil are having a war in your soul. That urging, that, that desire that you have to come to Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Please don't ignore Him. Thank you. Thank you. That's a good decision. That's the only wise decision. 
Okay, you, you can put your hands down. Okay, you, you can all open your eyes. I'm going to ask for those of you who raised your hands, and there were quite a number of you. I'd like to pray for you. I can't do it individually. So I'm going to ask you to please come down to the front, and I'm going to pray together with you. As you do that, what is the first thing that your Lord, you're going to make Jesus Lord. What's the first thing that your Lord is now going to tell you to do? Well, the Bible tells us that the first instruction that Jesus gives us as Lord is that he wants us to be baptized in water. Baptism is a public declaration that I have accepted Christ, I have died with him, my sin is left in the grave, and I have been raised to newness of life with him as he was raised from the dead. It's a public sign of your having been born into the body of Christ. And that means that you get born into a body. So you get baptized into a local church. And so as you come down, we're going to speak to you. Someone will come and pray with you. And one of the things they'll speak to you about is a, a process towards which we can work for your baptism. So you can obey that first command. Okay, if you raised your hand, I know who you are. If I have to come and fetch you, I will, okay? You come down and we're going to pray together. Jesus, I believe you died for sin. That you took my sin upon yourself. So that I could be forgiven. I believe you rose from the dead. And that you are seated on the throne of heaven. Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. And I make you my Lord. I give my life to you.
thank you for having me, guys. Please stay here because we're going to get some of the leaders to come and pray with each of you. Um, but from, from my part, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having me. And thank you, Scott and the yeah. others, for having me. It's been such a wonderful experience. Thank you, Steve, for that word. Um, we're going to close now, but before we do, I'd love to just pray for these guys together before we as leaders pray for them individually. Um, Steve was talking about that scripture where God says, where two or three are gathered in my name and agree, um, I answer their prayer. So let's, let's all agree in prayer as I just pray a prayer for these guys and for us as a church. Father, thank you for each and every one of these guys up front, especially. Thank you for the amazing journey that they're starting with this first step. And thank you that you'll be with them along the path. Thank you, God. Jesus, I pray that as you reveal yourself more clearly to them, as they walk this Christian life, as, as they see you clearer and clearer, that you would begin to change them and melt their hearts more and more and soften them and, and open them up to the things of you that you draw them in deeper and deeper. And God, I pray that as they are changed into your likeness, as they begin to look more and more like your Son, Jesus, our Savior and Lord, people would be drawn towards them. God, that they wouldn't put a veil over their face, that they would let the glory of Jesus reflected in their lives shine forth in this world, and, and that they would be that city on a hill. That we as a church would be a witness in this world. Yes. That we as a, a loving community would, would step forward in the power of your Holy Spirit yes, and change this nation and yes, change Jesus. this world for your glory and for your fame. Holy Spirit, come and be amongst us this evening and as we go out from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.